the lie the poetry tells is constant as the truth itself without the lies and the false beliefs where would we be where would we be welcome to the state of the theory podcast i'm hannah and i'm an india and we are your theory doctors Welcome back. Hello. Uh, nice to see you again. We are doing episode 18 today on maps. And this is quite a landmark moment because this is the first time we are actually going to talk about one of our research areas. Yeah. So <laughs> you're finally going to get some kind of expertise after 17 weeks of listening. The caveat, of course, is that calling me an expert in anything is a massive joke which i can't believe it really of course you are that i would be considered an expert of course you in are. anything you're an expert in many things so why why are we talking about maps today hana apart from the fact that it's your work well this is actually sort of a two part interrelated series um we're talking about maps this week um in connection with the proposal in the Indian government um to introduce a law that will restrict severely restrict the rights and ability for most people to make and publish and disseminate maps of India yes. um and we're t- going to talk about that law in particular but i think like what we always do is we spend very little time talking about the thing that we're talking about and we'll talk about the history of map making and the creation of institutions in India for the purposes of creating legitimate maps of India um and then very excitingly we'll talk about the theory of map making and critical cartography yes so the law uh just to to give you a refresher for those of you who who haven't heard India is seeking proposing to regulate the production of maps in other words any individual any organization that wants to produce a map of India has to have acquired a government license in order to do so and of course that government license requires a payment and it requires regulation and, and it requires surveillance so that only legitimate maps of india are are uh, produced um if you think for a moment you'll realize quite how far reaching the effects of this law will be and any satnav uh use any any geolocation use of any kind any technology of that kind uh, uh through to teaching geography at schools uh, the whole whole range will now come directly under the influence of the government it's i mean for anyone who knows anything at all about map making technology and and gps technology and and gis which is geographical information systems um and gis produced maps you know most maps today are made using satellites and satellite imagery and satellite technology um which of course is managed very much by many governments and by many international organizations and and governments working together so 
in order to enforce yeah. such a law is I mean in some senses it's it's, it's almost farcical um, given the scale of the internet and the power of the satellites that have been in orbit for decades now um, you know so for geographers this is quite a th- it's fascinating and it's kind of a one of those sort of eye roll moments yeah. if you don't stop to think critically about yeah. what's actually happening yeah. here yeah. Um, which is what I think we're going to talk more yes. about do you want to start um yeah I mean obviously the the law itself I feel like we make connections to Google because Google's been in the news a lot because of how Google um, displays maps and and labels certain parts of the region as being India or Pakistan or China or Nepal. And um, India has, has very vehemently opposed a lot of maps that Google has produced. Um, And so Google is sort of at the, at the forefront, I think, yeah. of the, the mainstream discourse. Yeah, so so the Chinese government, Pakistani government, Indian government don't agree on most things. And they especially don't agree on where the borders should be. So for Google to be in compliance with these various governmental wishes, Google would need to produce different maps for these different countries. So you would see a different version of Google Maps, depending on which country you are viewing it from. Yes, and this is old. This yes. this I mean goes back to 1947, certainly, but pre 1947 as well. And um, the the debates about where the borders should go, and then of course where the borders went, yeah. um, and now where the borders are, yeah. is is a long standing debate. There have been wars fought over the borders, um, the, the regions themselves function yeah. as fascinating borderlands, yeah. um, subject to unusual forms of, of military surveillance and patrol. Yeah. Um, and the, the maps themselves take on a certain kind of symbolic yeah. power in terms yeah. of of denying or granting territorial sovereignty. Yes. Um, and then they take on a whole historical narrative. Yeah. They come to represent um, this idea of, of what India has always been. Yes. Um, which, of course, is very important if you're talking about what India will be in the future. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's given the the borders in this these regions, the border between India and Pakistan, India and China, Pakistan and China, the border between India and Bangladesh, they are both very recent and not immediately um, decipherable, if that's the word. You know, you, it, is, it isn't immediately obvious where that line is going to go. Unlike, say, for example, Britain, where being an island nation, it is, it has always been obvious where the land ends and therefore where Britain ends. But a country like India, which has not existed in this form for very long 
and has existed in various forms through history with borders appearing and disappearing at various points. About the only way you can be sure of where the border is going to be is by drawing a map. Other than that, the border remains ephemeral. It remains intangible. Um, I remember when I was uh, when I was doing fieldwork in Pakistan. The first day I arrived, you know, very jet lagged, sitting in front of the TV, and suddenly realised I was watching Indian TV programmes uh, advertising Indian products, which wouldn't be available in Pakistan because I was close enough to the border that the TV signal was transmitted across the border. Uh, so people in Pakistan could watch Indian TV, even though they couldn't go to it in India. Yes. And you have, I mean, the, the you know, the, the kind of really common, you know, conversation, topic of conversation that someone would kind of interject here with yeah. is, well, the internet yes. is borderless. Yes. The internet crosses borders and therefore, you know, borders are irrelevant and we're all yes. human, you know, these, yeah. kinds yes. of, these kinds of liberal... Yeah aspirational tropes yes. that of course you know you tell that to someone who's yes. trying to get a visa to leave their country exactly. and can't yeah or even you know you the internet is not the same everywhere in other words you can you can access youtube in india you can't access youtube in pakistan certainly not legally yeah and facebook in china yes you know. and different versions of maps from google as, as we've discussed um before we go further do you want to say a bit more about the history of map-making process in British India. Yeah, so, I mean, you, the as you've mentioned, India has a very long history. Um, there are many competing narratives about that history, but before the British arrived in India and then in the first hundred years or so of the East India Company's activities in India... They were working with the Mughal Empire um, and various Mughal princes and and Mughal traders and merchants. Um, and the, the Mughals were a fairly centralized, um, we call it an empire. It was a land empire. It wasn't a maritime empire like the British or the French empires that we associate with the term now. Um, but they had a fairly centralized system um, with with governments located in parts of northern India and, and Central Asia. And the British were working quite closely with the Mughals. And the Mughals had a, a system and a process of map making. Um, they, did, they did do cartography in what historians would call the modern sense, mm-hmm. using, using math, yes. using surveying techniques. Um, trying to create somewhat kind of empirical representations of territory on in a 2D format um, on um, and for the purposes of administration, for the purposes of tax collection and the, the purposes of, of moving troops around. And um, so in a sense, they they were using maps in a way which was fairly similar to how maps were being used in Europe at the time. So in order to, you know, if you're going to say that, that the British kind of gave India maps, that's not, that's not totally mm-hmm. realistic. But the, the British system relied very, very heavily on map making and cartography and surveying technologies. Um, for obvious reasons, of course, they, 
They needed to know where their Indian populations were. They needed to, to know where the resources were, who had control of the resources, yeah. who they needed to access and who they needed to put pressure yeah. on in order to gain resources. Yeah. Eventually, it becomes this very complicated system for tax collection. Yeah. So the British are devising and practicing and perfecting surveying techniques and map-making techniques in India. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, they're using these same techniques back home eventually yeah. Yeah. To, to form the Ordnance Survey, which, of course, you know, Britain is very proud of its Ordnance Survey and its, its centralized and um, standardized yeah. system of, of surveying and map-making, which covers the entire country. Yeah. Um, they try and do the same thing for India, and they eventually established the Survey of India office. Um, it was based in Calcutta. Um, and to my knowledge, there's still Survey of India archives and offices in Calcutta. Um, and they created this whole massive centralized collection of, of maps of India that they could use um, to better control yeah. their growing territories yeah. and eventually in the kind of late 19th century they decide we need maps that match yeah. of course you know this seems obvious yeah. but if you don't have the internet and you don't yeah. have cars and yeah. you don't have phones and you basically have 10 dudes yes. stationed around yeah a huge land yeah. mass they need maps that match up. Yes. So they need maps that have the same scale. Yeah. They need maps that are of roughly the same amount of territory. Yeah. And yeah. then they need population maps. Yes. They need to be able to map out the census data that they're yeah. collecting so that yeah. they can better understand and then govern yeah. their population yes. and also extract the resources that they're trying yes. to extract. So they devise a standardized set of maps and it's managed centrally by the yeah. Survey of India office. This then, of course, gets used across the board, so not yeah. just by, by government officials, yeah. but also by, you know, by academics, yeah. right? Indian universities are yeah. using this for agricultural policy. They're using it for um, kind of writing historical narratives in historical textbooks yeah. for the purposes of education. Yeah. Um, this becomes the standard knowledge yes. of India. Fascinatingly, right, historians of India of this period yeah. use these same maps yes. and these same surveys yes. as primary documents to say, well, the population of the Punjab was yes. was this. It was yes. this breakdown. Yes. Um, it, it's it's very interesting how much of this data yeah. still gets used yes. as, as being valuable, yeah. realistic, accurate data. Yes. Um, well, there's there's nothing, there's nothing else. else. Yes. There is nothing else. Yes. Um, and then during the wars, of course, yeah. India, India now we're learning more and more as academics are able to publish more and more interesting work on yeah. the role of Indian Indians in the European wars in the early 20th century. Um, during the Second World War, yeah. the Survey of India office um, locked up all their maps. Um, so they basically kept all of their maps from being disseminated. Yeah anywhere um and this was for i don't want to call it national security because that's an anachronistic yeah. term but it is that it's, it's imperial security, imperial security. Yeah. and it's um basically it means that no up-to-date yeah. 
accurate current maps by the end of the war have been made available. Yeah. And very few have even been produced because, yeah. of course, all resources have gone to fighting the war and yeah. not to making maps. Yeah. So when it comes time to partition the subcontinent in 1947, Radcliffe and the Boundary Commissions don't have access to any recent survey of India maps because they are not available, Um, which adds to the drama of that story and the farce of that story, but also speaks to just how valuable maps of India were to the colonial government. And this, I mean, you know, this is true for all of the country, but especially if you look at the borderlands of, of Bengal, so the boundary between what is now India and Bangladesh, the the topography means that recent maps matter because everything moves. Rivers move, land gets eroded, new lands get created. So the 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 speed of change of landscape is so fast that, you know, a map that's even a few years old is useless because the shape of the land has changed. Yes, and it's it's similar as well for um, development, um, for man-made changes to the land. Um, And, and, you know, the growth of cities and... And the demographic of populations. Exactly. Given how, how, what, given the grounds on which partition was happened was done um, you know the, the need to accurately count the number of Hindus, Muslim Sikhs in, in any, any one part of the country was quite crucial it was imperative yeah yeah, um, yeah in order for Radcliffe to get accurate he, he fought tooth and nail to get accurate up to date maps yeah. of the subcontinent um, and the project was always and necessarily incomplete yeah um, the, the, of course, the imperial governments all had this desire to fully know and understand the regions that they were operating in. Mm-hmm. But of course, the, they had instigated particular mm-hmm. trajectories of, of yeah. economic and social and political yeah. development that snowballed yeah. to such an extent yeah. that they, their study of themselves couldn't keep up. Yeah, so there's a, there's a paradox at the heart of maps, is, is there, that on the one hand it is an exercise in power, it is, you know, I, my act of mapping this land demonstrates my ownership of it. Yeah, it's the flag in the ground yeah. kind of a thing. But it is also an illusion, because it, my act of mapping this land portrays the, the illusion that I have of fully knowing it. Exactly. Because I can't. Exactly. And there's this... Um, I, historical geographers who work on this period, on the period of the later empires, um, talk a lot about the, um, the Joseph Conrad essay, Geography Militant, and about how Conrad had this nostalgia for um, the the blank spaces on the map, the white spaces of the map and discovering the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa. And, and, um, for, for Conrad, once the entire world had been mapped, once Europeans had been to every part of the world and mapped it for him, that was very sad. That was kind of a, 
the sort of end point of yeah. this great golden age of yeah. European geography and European yeah. discovery. Yeah. And, and it, of course, the fact, the, the very idea that Europeans had discovered everything there was to know about the world yeah. was completely untrue. Yeah. But what then it, what it does is it, it instigates this program of, of maintaining empires. Yes. Um, and routinizing and standardizing imperial practices. Um, and this really is, I mean, we, we kind of date it from the 1880s. Yeah. Everyone's favorite decade. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and it, it is used as an explanation for yeah. the, the rise in anti-colonial nationalism. Yes. Yes. Um, and it's a strange... I mean, it's a strange history, and it's one that historical geographers go back and forth talking about. Yeah. The sort of what about this narrative is is left over from you know colonial narratives of itself, yes. the empire telling itself its own story, yes. versus what is post colonial and what is a critique of empire and a yes. critique of of the colonial world. And maps function as a part of maps do that as yes. well. Yes. Um, You were going to talk about the IS story because there's an element of this that's not just India. Yes, so um, there, there's a couple of news stories of late uh, about, well, there's lots of news stories about IS, yeah. uh, as, as you know, but the ones we're specifically interested in is uh, a few stories that uh, talked about the relationship between IS and the border between Syria and Iraq, which is the Sykes-Pico line, which is a line drawn uh, in collaboration between two, a, a British and a French civil servant, uh, who decided where that line would go. And uh, in the ISIS imagination of a utopian pre-westernized Middle East, that line doesn't exist. That that is a a, a a visual reminder of, as they see it, a decadent, corrupt Western influence in the region, uh, and the influence acts by breaking the the land into into category categories that can be more easily controlled. And ISIS would rather speak of and dream of this pan-Arab, pan-Islamic um, space free of Western control. Uh, and one of the interesting things is is the differences between India on the one hand, which is a post-colonial nation-state, and IS, which sort of wants to be a post-colonial nation-state, and how their attitudes towards post-colonial objects, the border, which is a post-colonial object, how their attitude is radically different. So IS officially does not want that line to exist. India, some sections of India does not want the line between India and Pakistan to exist. But officially, India is so invested that it is punitively regulating the practice of delineating that border so that everyone always knows where that border is that there is no ontological uncertainty about where India ends and Pakistan begins. 
And that difference is quite interesting. It is. It is interesting. I wonder... Um, I mean, it might just be that the the ideologies of IS and the Indian government are a bit different um, in some sense. Um, what I know of, certainly what I know of Muslim nationalism in India, which is yes. certainly not like IS nationalism yes. at all in any way, yeah. pre-1947, um, that gave rise eventually to a movement calling for an independent state from, from Muslims in the region. Um, in the early earlier years, certainly of the 20th century, that the, the idea of, of the Muslim identity being separate from the Indian identity was a false one yeah. because Muslims have, have an identity that is not bordered, Yes. That can't be bordered. Yes. That there is a community yes. of Muslims that transcends race. Yes. That transcends region. Yes. And that that identity yeah. fits. Yes. And can, can and should yes. coexist alongside a territorial yes. national identity. Yes. Where you are a citizen of a state. Yes. That is not necessarily an Islamic state. Yes. And it seems that that same idea of the Muslim community, the Ummah, yes. is flipped on its head yes. in the IS yes. Islamic State ideology, where all the territory where Muslims yes. live should be subsumed yes. by a territory, yes. by yes. a single unified territory. Yes. And that that's... Um, the the Ummah marks or the concept of the Ummah marks one of the many radical differences between Muslim nationalism in South Asia and Hindu nationalism in South Asia, because Hindu nationalism sees itself as rooted, sees itself as coming out of that part of the world, South Asia. It is a South Asian thing, uh, and therefore cannot understand how. A South Asian Muslim might feel more they have more in common with a Palestinian Muslim or a North African Muslim or than than with an Indian Hindu, and that pan-national affective connection then gets seen to be suspect, a marker of treason, because your loyalty to the nation, the the Indian nation, is seen to be suspect. Yes, that you can only have one yes. identity. Yes. And that everyone who shares your identity yes. has a matching yes. identity that you are that you can be grouped together. And that that's why that's why alternative maps are so threatening, right? Because in questioning where the territory of India ends, in challenging that you are implicitly challenging the loyalties and identities and emotions of the people living in those territories. If you, if, if you are saying that India doesn't end here, India ends 100 miles away on the other side, then you are redrawing the national identities and loyalties of the people living in those 100 miles. Yes. It's interesting because there is there's that 
There's the kind of identity formation. Yes. The writing of our shared collective history as a people. That yes. that sort of identity formation. But as well, and this is where the Pakistan question became really tricky in the 1940s. Yeah. Because there's that. There's yeah. the identity bit. Yeah. But there is the... There's the the civic government citizenship yeah. bit. Yes. Which, in many ways... Yes. Doesn't fit... It can't be mapped, to use the, the metaphor. Yes. It can't be mapped along the same lines. Yeah. It works differently and yeah. it serves a different purpose. Yes. The, the role of the citizen and, and the citizen's relationship to the state yeah. in terms of electoral politics, yes. in terms of paying taxes, yes. in terms of military service, in yes. terms of um, of general protections yeah. um, and a passport, you yes. know, are different. Yes. And they, it does different things. Yes. And, you know... A state does things like provides infrastructure and yeah. and roads and bridges and maintains um, electric plant electricity plants yes. and yes. power plants and um, and creates standards for safety and you know labor laws yeah. and these things and those have those things don't necessarily have to have anything to do with the the narrative of identity. No, except they sort of do. Certainly they do in India. So uh, the law, the proposed law that uh, makes it illegal for any non-recognized authority institution to produce a map is a new one. But a law that has always existed, or certainly not always, but you know, that I remember from being a child, is that you are not allowed to take photographs of things like bridges, or dams, or power plants, or any any piece of infrastructure that could possibly be construed as a potential target for terrorism. Yeah. Um, in other words, in capturing a likeness of that dam in a photograph, I am challenging its authority and the state's authority, because the state cannot know what I'm going to do with that photograph. I might take it away and use it to plan a bomb. Or sell it or to sell someone it. who might yes, be interested. Exactly. It's the state's suspicion of your loyalties enacted upon these bits of infrastructure, which apparently have nothing to do with how Indian you feel. And your loyalties can be measured yes. by this this national identity, religious identity, yes. cultural identity. Yes. That's how, that's the metric against yes. which your loyalty as a citizen yes. is measured. Yes. Which, of course, you know, the laws about making maps fits right in. Yes. Fits right into that. Absolutely. Um, I mean, maps have, have many different purposes yes. and different applications. Yes. Um, and, of course... There's been a lot of academic work done on yes. Indian mapping and, and the yes. history of Indian maps. And um, there are some very fascinating maps of India yes. floating around. Yes. Some of which I own. Yes. Um, Many of which are presumably will now be illegal. Yes, fascinatingly <laughs> enough. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, 
But a lot of the interesting work that's been done by geographers um, and by historians of geography relies very much, and this is where we get into the really exciting theory part. This is the state of the theory. Yes. Um, relies on the quite small but very focused literature produced by critical cartographers. And critical cartography is a subdiscipline within the history of mapping and the history of cartography. And it was founded. We don't really, it's not old enough to have been founded, but <laughs> it was begun by an academic named um, John Brian Harley, J.B. Harley, who was a British academic, but he spent a lot of time working in North America as well as in Britain. And in throughout his career, he was a historian of cartography and he was a map maker. Um, and then in the 1980s, as part of a broader cultural turn in many of the social sciences, um, geography included, he discovered Derrida and Foucault, among others. And he found the methods of deconstruction and discourse analysis to be enlightening yeah. in his study of maps. Yeah. Up until the 1980s, maps were understood by everyone yeah. to be positivist tools yes. of geography yeah. and so, the practice of geography. So it's, it is an accurate representation of a piece of land, nothing more, nothing less. Exactly. Yes. And when you go back and look at old maps, right, like Mapa yes. Mundi, yes. medieval maps of yes. Europe, which are cosmographic, yes. they place, often they place Jerusalem, yes. they're religious maps, they place Jerusalem in the center and they yeah. depict a spiritual yes. realm yes. using a kind of metaphorical yes. representation of Europe. Yes. And they're depicting the Holy Land, yes. They're, you know, and there's yes. all this iconography of, of yes. sins and... Yes very disturbing yes. images of death. You yes. know that and those are understood yeah. up until kind of the 1980s 1990s as being cute and artistic and aesthetically interesting yes. but not representations yes. of the earth. Yes. And that's sort of where we leave it. They're yes. inaccurate. Yes. They're interesting, yeah. but they're not accurate. Yes. We can't possibly use yes. them. And map making, you know, follows this same Yeah. We've talked about teleology before. Yeah. This follows the same teleology of progress, scientific progress, that maps get more and more accurate yes. and, and more and more useful. Yes. And, you know, there's there's something to be said for that. Yeah. You know, re remote sensing and, and remote yeah. imaging is, is a useful and powerful technology. Um, allows us to do all kinds of things that we've yes. never done before. Um. But, of course, there's a whole other way yeah. of theorizing and understanding maps and how maps work yeah. and what maps do. And so Harley basically said, maps do multiple things at once. One of the things they do is they tell us where we are on the face yeah. of the earth. Yeah. And they help us get yeah. from A to B. Yeah. And they show us yeah. visually what we know. Yes. Obviously, yeah. that's what maps do. Yeah. But then they have another purpose. Yeah. They do something else. And he calls this the internal power of the map. Yeah. And that maps for Harley are also instruments of power in the Foucaultian sense. Yes. 
which is that they work undercover insidiously to disseminate and produce and reproduce certain forms of institutional power. Um, And so the, the British colonial government, for example, when drawing their maps, were often drawing aspirational maps. They were drawing maps that showed the territory they wanted to have in India versus the territory that they actually had in India. And before partition in 1947, many, many maps were drawn of India showing an aspirational independent India, what India should and could look like if it wasn't subject to the evil whims of of the empire. Um, And and this is a form of power. And maps are extremely powerful tools in this sense. So a lot of of historians and, and really historical geographers who do this kind of work particularly who study empire, go back and look at the ways in which maps were produced under the guise of scientific authority, but in fact were being used to make territorial claims that would eventually deny Native people's rights to resources, that um, would deny Dalip Singh his territory and his property, you know, that maps are used as part of a whole cocktail of, of scientific technologies yes. to assert and claim yes. legal authority. Yes. And of course, you know, there's a whole military wing of mapping. Yes. Maps yes. underpin most yes. military activity. Yes, so there's an overt power as yes. well um, that's just, you know, straight up. Yes. This is a map of the yes. territory we're going to invade. Yes. Um, and and this is you can you can read any map yeah. using this theory, yeah. and you can examine any map yeah. in this way. Yeah. Um, you know, Grand Theft Auto map. Yeah. A road map. Yes. Google Maps. Yes. You know, any any yes. map you could yes. possibly want. Um, and Sumanthi Ramaswamy writes a lot about Indian mapping. Yeah. Um, she kind of, she, she took the idea that it wasn't just the British government making maps of India during the colonial yes. period. Yes. Indians were also making yes. maps. Yes. Fascinating maps. Yes. So it, it, it's both map making as both an instrument of power and of resistance. Yes. Yes. And also of consolidating the resistance. Yes. So, you know, pre-1947, you have lots and lots of different ideas about what India should look like. Yeah. For example, um, Rahmat Chaudhry Ali's maps yeah. of, of Dinia. Yeah. And Do you want to say a bit more about Dinia? Yeah, this is such a weird thing because no one writes about yeah. this. But it's the mo- some of the most fascinating maps yeah. of, of pre-independent India yeah. ever produced, I yeah. think, by a nationalist. Yeah. Um, and he... He was a Muslim. He was living in Britain. He lived in Britain for most of his life. He's still buried in in Cambridge. And he devised the term Pakistan as a 
an acronym for the regions of the, the subcontinent that he wanted to go to Pakistan. Yes. And he is famous for introducing Jinnah to yeah. the idea. Yes. And Jinnah saying, no, 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 that's a terrible yes. idea. That's yes. what he's famous for. After that rejection, yeah. he is not deterred. Yes. He continues writing pamphlets. And he's drawing maps. He's drawing maps of India using the British template. Yes. And he's drawing these new maps of the subcontinent, and he's renamed the subcontinent. He says India is a, a European-imposed term. India is, is a British term for us. We are not India. We're not Indians. We need to rename ourselves. Yeah. And he renames India Dinia, yeah. calls it the continent of Dinia. He uses yeah. geographical terminology to yes. say India is not a country, it's a continent. And then he draws all these different countries. Yeah. And he devises this whole new international system for the subcontinent, and he publishes yeah. these pamphlets, and yeah. I mean, I can't imagine they had a wide readership. Yeah. But they're floating around, yeah. sitting in, in archives, yeah. and no one writes about this. Yes. And so those kinds of ideas get yes. get buried, yes. and other forms of imagining the nation are highlighted yes. and become popular. Yeah, so so the kind of resistance that is embodied in Muhammad Chaudhary's action in drawing the map of Dinia is the kind of resistance that the Indian government is now clamping down. Yes. Right? You you are no longer going to be able to do that without specific sanctions against you, you know, in terms of fines and so on. Yes. And possibly imprisonment, you know the the the, the the punitive power of the of the state is going to be marshaled in stopping you from creating any kind of alternative map. In the the punitive power of the state is going to stop you from imagining a, an alternative geography of of space in India. Yes. Yes. Which there is that, but there's also the more mundane yeah. applications of this law. Where, for example, community mapping, right? Organizations and communities that are dealing with, with very yes. rapid forms of development and environmental yes. change and resource management um, often use processes of community mapping and surveying yes. and yes. local surveying yes. um, to come together to form yes. agreements and um, produce documents. Yes. All of that will change. Yes. All of yes. that will come under the purview of, of the central government. Yes. Um, and it's, it, you know, this is, we, we mentioned at the start that this is sort of, sort of the first of a two-parter. And I guess one of the connections between these two episodes, so one of the things we're going to go on to explore next week, is the map as a site of tension between the nation-state looking after its own interests, on the one hand, and a more generalized, broader, globalized capitalism and its interests on the other. So you have, you know, it, it is in the interests of India, the nation-state, as it sees itself, to police who gets to draw a map and who gets to use what map of India. It is in the interests of Google and Uber and whichever other co multinational co corporation that you can think of that uses geolocation technology 
it is in their interest to be able to produce and circulate maps. And somehow the map becomes the, the focal point for the tension between these two opposing worldviews, which most of the time sort of can work together, as we've seen in other episodes. But in moments like this, the fissure becomes clearer. Yeah, and it's not just not just global capital, but other forms of global organization and cooperation. Um, so I'm thinking specifically of um, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental yeah. Panel on Climate Change, and um, other UN-driven yeah. um, programs yes. to combat climate change. Yes. Um, and at the international level, of course, the climate change agenda is really discussed in terms of international cooperation. Yeah. Um, you know, huge news in Paris six months ago, um, for example. Yeah. And India is very famous for yeah. remaining very skeptical yeah. of IPCC science and IPCC reports and the international climate change agenda. Yeah. Um, Primarily because in one of the re- one of the reports, some erroneous data was included that said that the Himalayan yeah. glaciers were melting at a particular rate, and in fact they're not. And so, yeah. um, India has pulled out of IPCC negotiations and and um, publications, yeah. and have do their own climate change reports yeah. and do their own environmental science yeah. work, yeah. Um, and. There's at that level. There's an assertion of Indian scientific authority yes. over Indian environmental yes. science, yes. Um, and there's not a denial of the the global concern of climate change, yes. and there's certainly not a denial of the global economy. Yes. But there is an assertion that the rights of the nation state yes. to claim ownership over the science and claim ownership over the map production should be considered and enforced. In a sense, it's very ideological because in terms of actual enforcement and actual application... It's very, very difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's it's important. I mean, you know, yeah. is 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 India expecting CIA satellites flying up above to ask permission every time they go past India taking photographs? <laughs> of course not. Um, is does India expect every time a school child draws a map in a geography lesson that they'll pay a fine? Of course <laughs> not. So. It's it's one of those laws where what matters is that the law exists rather than that the law is enforced because as soon as you have this legal framework then then you automatically delegitimize all other categories of maps, all other forms of maps that it, that are not officially recognized by the government. Yeah. I think that's a good note to end on. I think yeah. I've said pretty much everything we wanted to say um, thanks for listening um, as I said this will be this conversation will carry on uh, next week when we look at uh, school history syllabuses uh, so look forward to speaking to you then 
If you have any questions, have any comments, let us know. Tweet at us. Yeah. Uh, rate us, review us on iTunes. And see you next week. See you next week. Oh, one more note. Go to the BBC website and listen to an India talking on the radio because the BBC and the AHRC have anointed him a next-generation thinker, but only for the next 12 months. Yes. And he... What are you talking about? What did you talk about this I past spoke weekend? I about, very briefly, about my research on partition on, on the radio. Uh, and it's on the BBC Radio 3 website. Yeah. So go listen, write comments, pro in India comments. Um, he won't ever advertise himself on the podcast, but I'm going to do it for him. So go there. We'll put the link. (laughs) That's very kind of you. Thank you. Um, Yes, and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you.